Sorry. <laughs> mm. So good. I lost track of time. Sorry. There's some cookies backstage, and they're so good. See, now I'm thirsty. Uh, guys, could we, is there any, um, one of you, yes, bless you. It's Christmas Eve, right? It's milk and cookies. There we go. That's the business. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. The, the cookie was actually one of my grandma Parker's famous molasses crinkle cookies. Well, they're famous in our family. <laughs> so this, this was actually her original recipe. Way back in the day, Robin Hood flour. Some of you might remember Robin Hood flour. They're not even in business anymore. But they would put cookbooks in bags of flour. There was this recipe for molasses crinkles, and she adjusted it and tweaked it to be just exactly what she wanted. <laughs> and and it, it's, a, it's a family, it's a Christmas tradition in our house my mom, or, you know, would make them, and because the grandma made them, and now my mom made them, and now Deb makes them, and, and she'll make a plate, and she'll put them out, and they, they usually disappear pretty quick. You see, when, when Deb and I got married, um, she gave, my mom gave Deb uh, some blue paper, three-hole punched, and, and Deb put it in a, it was some of my favorite recipes, and Deb put it in a binder. And just added on to it over the years. We're going to celebrate 25 this October. And so she just, over the years, just kept adding on and adding on. And this is her binder of recipes. And when Emma got married a couple years ago, Deb made a copy of the binder and, and gave it to her as a wedding gift. These are the recipes you, you grew up with. And, and, and now when Deb really just hits it out of the park with a meal, our other girls, Eden and Erin, will say, Mom. That goes in the binder. <laughs> now, the only way to get one of those binders is to be born into or marry into the Scott family. It's just one of those things, right? I guess now this runs in the family. You've got those things, too, in your family. Possessions that get handed down generation to generation. And, and sometimes they're, they're tr physical traits. You know, everybody in our family's got green eyes or curly hair or whatever. And sometimes they're, they're like... Psycho-emotional things. Everyone's an extrovert. In our family, you've got a pretty, have a pretty good sense of silly or you're not going to make it. <laughs> you, you know, sometimes there's these emotional things. And some things get handed down. Some are good and some aren't so good and some are downright awful. Maybe your family is susceptible to a particular disease. Or there's a mental health struggle that just kind of runs... In the family, we've related to some folks that just generation after generation have struggled with depression. It happens. We live in a broken world. Those things can run in the family too. You know, it's funny. When you look at Jesus' family, man, they were a mess. I know that God is all wise. I know that. But it does make you wonder, the family that he put his son in, like, man, they were a piece of work. This Christmas season here at Chapel Rock, we've been looking at the family tree of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. Over the last few weeks, we've just kind of traced his genealogy from Adam all the way to Joseph and Mary. You look at those lists of names and you're tempted to think, oh, it's just a list of names, but it's not. It's not. It's actually the table of contents 
to the story of Jesus' family. And because if you're in Christ, you're part of that family, it has bearing on your story too. I had a thought a while back. I was just, you ever do this? You're reading along something and maybe you're reading your Bible and you're thinking, you know, I wonder... And it just occurred to me as I was looking back through the, those, those names, those people who were part of Jesus' family, what if they could all be there for the birth? Like, what if they could just all be there at the same time? I know they couldn't. I know that's impossible. I get it, right? Maybe, maybe God let them look down from heaven and, and see. I mean, he probably didn't, but you can't prove he didn't, so I don't know. And, and I just want to pause right here and say that I know that for some of you, this is going to be your first Christmas without somebody special. I know that because I talked to someone this morning in our morning service. I I know that because I know your stories. And I just want you to know on this Christmas Eve that Jesus understands the way you're feeling right now. He lost a good friend too. We'll see in a little bit. I I don't know that Jesus even met his grandpa. Jesus knows how you're feeling. And now that I'm on this side of being a a grandparent, (laughs) that hits a little bit harder. But let's just imagine. Let's use our sanctified imaginations together tonight and just imagine that everybody that we read about could, could be there to see the baby Jesus. Like, what if that was the reason there was no room in the inn, right? Like, all of his family just showed up. It's not. I get it. But what if it was, right? What if there was just this line of people? Because there would be a line. I don't know about your family, but when the first grandchild comes along, there's a line to see the baby. What if there was a line of all of those people who wanted to see the baby Jesus. First in line, Jacob, Joseph's father. Now Jacob is only mentioned this one place in Luke 3. Nowhere else. As far as we know, Jacob may not have seen Jesus be born. He might have died before that happened. There's no record of him. If he were still living when Jesus was doing his ministry, we probably would read about him, but we don't. We don't read much about Joseph, honestly. So it's very likely that that Jacob, Joseph's dad, never got to meet his grandson. Certainly didn't get to see him grow up and redeem the world. So he'd be first in line. He wants to see his grandson. Next in line, a little further back, and you've got Zerubbabel. That's a fun name to say, parents, if you need to get your kids distracted. Just teach them to say Zerubbabel. He was a, a, a... was related to King David. He worked with the great scribe and reformer Ezra to, to uh, re, uh, refinish and refurbish the temple after Israel had been in exile for 80 years, 70 years, and they came back, and he rebuilds the temple, and he rebuilds the altar, and I just can't help but wonder what Zerubbabel, this, this one who, who was predicted by the prophet Jeremiah, came in and, and was a restorer. And what he would have thought at this little one who was going to restore so much more. And then behind him in line just a bit is King Hezekiah. He's one of the best kings that the nation of Judah ever had after it split. King David's son did that. In fact, there's a tunnel there that still bears his name, Hezekiah's Tunnel. He was the king who who dug a tunnel to get water in the middle of a siege. (laughs) So he could bring in 
fresh water for the people to drink, water still flows through that tunnel even today, hundreds and hundreds of years later. And I wonder what he would have thought of this little one who was going to grow up to give living water. It never runs dry, the Gospel of John says. Behind Hezekiah is a couple, King David and, oh, Bathsheba. Okay. I mean, she's in there too. She's in the list. In fact, Jesus' family tree splits at that point. Luke records that they had a son named Nathan, and you've got a line that descends from that. Matthew tells us they had a son named Solomon. You've probably heard of him. There's a line that descends from that. So Jesus actually, the line splits for their two boys. We don't know much about Nathan. He's only mentioned a couple times. Solomon's actually the youngest. It's kind of a trend in Jesus' family tree. David was like that, right? He was the youngest. They show up and Boy, that's a complicated situation, isn't it? Those two being there like, we kind of know that story. That's, whoa. But you know, some of your stories might have those threads in them too, huh? If God would send his son into a family like that, what could he do with yours? Maybe you've got some threads like that in your family's story. Can you imagine, can you see him there? King David looking down at the son of David in a manger and remembering his days as a shepherd boy. Bathsheba thinking about the son maybe that she and David lost. And now seeing this healthy baby boy and her heart just fills with joy and the shame that she once knew is just washed away. Speaking of shepherds, a little further back, there's a man who looks like a Bedouin herdsman. It's actually Judah, the tribal forefather of Jesus. And and I don't know this, there's no description of Judah in the Old Testament, but I just have this mental picture of him being someone who's, he looks stern, right? He's a hard man, he works outside, he works in the elements, he's a small business owner, he's got to drive and push and struggle his whole life. And he just looks hard until he smiles. And then when he smiles, his whole face changes. And I just have this mental picture of Judah kind of marching right up to the manger. He's a shepherd. He's a herdsman. He's comfortable around these things. And he marches right up and everybody kind of, whoa, you know. Right? Because when people walk up to a baby really fast, everyone's like, whoa. And he walks up there and he leans down. He reaches in his bag. And again, everyone's like, uh. But then he pulls out a gift. And puts it in the manger. And it's a small stuffed lion. And then behind him is Abraham and Sarah. And they are all smiles. Sarah's kind of dabbing at her eyes and chuckling under her breath. Just looking at the baby and just, you know, she's a mess. a snot. It's awesome. But Abraham is the only one who's not looking down. He's looking up. And he speaks up. And he says, you kept it. You made a promise and you kept it. Oh, this is a blessing to me and everybody else. Thank you, Lord, for keeping your promise. 
And then there's a long gap. And everybody thinks, you ever been at a party when you think it's almost done and then someone shows up and it's, oh, hey, here we go. And There's a long gap. And another couple comes in. And they're dressed different. Like in, not much. <laughs> it's Adam and Eve. And they just kind of stand there looking down at Jesus. And they just kind of cry for a bit. And Eve reaches out her hand to Adam and he takes her hand and she reaches down and just kind of rubs her heel. And if you didn't know any better, you'd swear that down in the straw near the manger, there's a snake with his head crushed. Mary, even in the midst of her pain, reaches around and grabs a clean cloth and hands it to Eve to wipe her eyes. They kind of have a moment. The mother of all the living and the mother of the Messiah. And then Adam speaks. It gets real quiet when Adam speaks. And he says, finally, finally, here is the Son of God. Now we know from Luke's gospel that the only visitors that Joseph and Mary had that night were shepherds. We know that. Everything you just heard, I've made up. I just think it would be cool. I don't know, maybe I'm getting too sentimental in the second half of my life, but I like the idea of all of these people in Jesus' family story finally getting to see where their story was headed. We don't always get to see where our story is headed, do we? And I'm sure even if they got to look down from heaven, probably not. But even if they did, I don't think any of them had any idea how big their family was about to get. You see, in John's gospel, he writes about Jesus. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. See, these people in Jesus' family history didn't get to see where their story was headed. But in Christmas, you get to see where your story is headed. God sent his son so that you could become his son and daughter. He sent his Son, so that you could be adopted into his family. And I can't think of a better time than Christmas for you to become part of Jesus' family by believing in his death on the cross in your place for your sin. And his resurrection, he signed your adoption papers in his own blood. And he invites you to respond by faith, by confessing him as Lord, by repenting of your sins, by being baptized and walking in discipleship to him. If you've never made a decision to do that, you could be part of God's family. When we're done, I'm going to hang around for a little bit down front. If you want to talk about that, I'd love for you to come find me. Now, next Sunday, our service times go back to normal, 9, 15, and 11. So maybe you've got to get to Grandma's house. I don't know. Maybe tonight's not a good night. But maybe next Sunday, last day of the year, you're like, yep, that's my day. I want to do that. We'll also have some of our staff members in the next step room if you'd like to visit. Christmas should be a reminder that whosoever 
is willing can be part of Jesus' family. Now, to get the binder, you got to be born into or marry into the Scott family. And that's a narrow window with a strict application process. But I know what my grandma Cynthia Parker would say if I talked about her cookies but didn't offer you one. I would be in trouble with my grandma, rest her soul. So, when you leave tonight, we want you to have one of Grandma Cynthia's molasses crinkle cookies. And packaged inside it is the recipe from the binder. I guess that makes us family. Merry Christmas. <laughs>